Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we'll be reading from verses 13 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You may have a seat. And please, as you have, take a seat. Go ahead and bow with me as we pray to our Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you as people who do not deserve any of your mercy, and yet we have received grace beyond measure. It is in this grace that we can come before you, thankful for your word that shows us the truth. It shows us the truth of our own hearts. It shows us the truth of the way of salvation through Christ alone but also lovingly and graciously warns us of the past that may lead to ruin, paths that lead away from you, and paths that follow the world. As we hear these heavy words of yours, help us to examine our own hearts, to consider which path that we are on, the wide path or the narrow path. Let us consider the fruit of our lives and what that tells us about where we are rooted. And let us consider whether our house is built on the rock of obedience to the words of life or in the sands of moralism or worldly success or or self-righteousness, Lord. Lord, each of us here come with different burdens. And we know that in some, for some in our congregation, they have lost their jobs. And we ask that you would provide for them, but more importantly, that they would trust in you as the provider of all things. Some of us here may have lost loved ones recently, We think of Will Wu, Grace Lee, and Christine Cha. Lord, would you continue to remind them and all of us that there is an eternity beyond this life, that we might live this life in anticipation of that eternity. And we think of those who have family members who are currently fighting illness. We think of Brittany Fung. We think of the Chan family, Kevin and Chelsea, as they support their family members. Would your light shine brightly in their lives and sustain them as they minister to their family members. And for any others that I may have not mentioned by name, we ask for your provision and your goodness. We ask that these things be their testimony. And even though through some of the most difficult times where we may be weak, I ask that you supply strength through good and true words spoken in love. 
Others of us find ourselves pressed and struck down, discouraged, and the sinfulness of our hearts have perhaps spilled out for all to see. And we are all guilty, Lord. While we might act surprised at the kinds of things that come out of our hearts when the circumstances draw them out, you, Lord, you are not surprised. You've always seen with full clarity all the things that we only see when they're brought to the surface. The anger at loved ones, the selfishness, the greed, the impatience, the hate, the impurity. All of these things are laid bare before you, and each of us has more than our fair share. And yet, Lord, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, all of these things are known, and our guilt has been assessed and verified, and they are completely and thoroughly forgiven through Christ our Savior. And what a salvation this is, and what a Savior we have, a Savior whom we gladly submit our lives to as a people who are freed from their sin and walking in a newness of life. For those here who may not have placed their faith in you, I ask that you reveal to them the hopelessness of any alternative that they may have. Some seek comfort in financial security, others in relationships, and others in health, others in pride, or their own sense of morality. And while these things may have the appearance of granting fulfillment, we know that they are all empty hopes, foundations of sand that will be exposed when the time comes. And I pray that you would show them that the real problem is their sin and guilt, and that real hope can only come through turning from those other hopes and placing their full trust in a Savior that saves the way, the truth, and the life found in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, would you guide us this week as our country heads to the ballot box? Would you give us the wisdom during this election season, and not only on how to vote for the people and the policies that would honor you, that would uphold righteousness, but also that you would give us wisdom on how to conduct ourselves in the world in a way that makes it clear that salvation is not found at the ballot box or at the electoral college. Our problem is not that we have sinful leaders or sinful policies, though we certainly may, but that we ourselves have sinful hearts, and we don't achieve salvation by electing the right people into offices, but by repenting of our sin and turning to Christ. Neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden are the Savior, but they are men who need a Savior. And we ask that you would accomplish the work of saving faith in both of these men, and not these men only, but for all people. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, those nearer to us and those far from us, because you are a God who desires that all people are saved. As Pastor Morales shared with us last week, may our hearts break for the lost around the world, but also around us in our neighborhoods and our families and our places of work. And may the light of the gospel shine brightly and bring unity amongst our church, even if the rest of the world reveals division and more and more of it. We eagerly await your blessed return, but in the meantime, give us the faith and the strength to be lights amidst a dark and perverse generation. Bless us today from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Kevin, for sharing with us a heart in prayer for the Lord and for His concerns, especially this week as we get ready for uh, an exciting time in our nation and in our country. So, and, and for praise team and Peter, thank you for leading us 
in God's word and song for the opportunity to stop for a moment and be mindful and rejoice at the real power that sustains this world and that sustains us is the power of the cross. It's certainly not the power of the ballot box, that's for sure, and it's good to be reminded of that. Well, last Sunday as part of our missions week, the Lord richly blessed us and myself personally through the ministry of the Morales family who are Grace Missionary International missionaries who are waiting to go to Colombia. And with every blessing, brothers and sisters, that the Lord gives us comes the responsibility and challenge of stewardship. Be it a job, a career, a family, a church, with every blessing the Lord gives, greatest of all our salvation, there is a responsibility and challenge that comes with that. And it's a challenge of stewardship. It's the responsibility of rightly caring for and sharing with others the blessing and the grace that the Lord has given to us. Every blessing the Lord gives us, brothers and sisters, that is a gift that He's given. And it it bears that responsibility. How do we take care of this? But also, how do we share it with others? Because it's not meant for us to bury and kept locked up. Those were some of the the things that, that Ricardo, Pastor Ricardo last week reminded us of. But part of this responsibility of stewardship for us as a church personally with where we're at, and especially with regards to the Morales family, is for our elders and our church to prayerfully consider the question, is the Lord calling us as a church and as individuals to partner with the Morales family in planting churches and making disciples in Colombia? Well, that's a question that we have to wrestle with and we have to ask in response to what we've heard. And as I've shared with the elders, this is a question that we as a church and as individuals, we can't neglect or put off or just think we'll answer it when the next missionary comes through. Because this is a question, brothers and sisters, that is about so much more than just who we support financially. And this is a question that is about so much more than the missionaries we support or the churches we support, LBCLA, or the seminary students we support or the short-term missions we send out. It's about, brothers and sisters, so much more than just writing checks. This is really a question about who we, as the household of God, affirm and endorse to represent and serve Christ in his church. It's a question who we come together as the household of God and say, we endorse this person, this ministry, this endeavor, and we affirm that this is of the Lord. And that the people who we are supporting and we are endorsing, they accurately represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and they accurately represent His church. Well, that's a big responsibility. It's one of the reasons why we delay many times. Either we don't want to go or we don't want to send. Because at the end of the day, the real crux of the issue is, is is this person, am I, are these things, do they really accurately represent Christ? 
do they accurately represent his church? And in a sense, this question applies not just to missionaries and church plants and the seminary students who we support. This is a question that applies to anyone and everyone who serves in our church. Elders, deacons, guest speakers who come in and fill the pulpit, discipleship group leaders, praise team members, and everybody who stands here on the stage, whether in a small way or big way. And to be frank with you, this is a question that the elders have been wrestling with for the past year. Who should be leading? Who should be teaching? Who should be serving in Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose in the household of God? Who should not be leading? Who should not be serving? Who should not be teaching? Who should not be singing in the praise team? Who should be singing in the praise team? Who should be lifting chairs? Who shouldn't be lifting chairs? Brothers and sisters, this affects all of us. Because it's really a criteria of what servanthood is all about. It's not a finger pointing, well, this person shouldn't. The question really comes down to, should I? And it's for this reason, as the elders have really wrestled and prayed over this over the last few years, probably, but intensely over the past year, this is why the elders have decided that we would this year study through the God-breathed words of First Timothy as a church Sunday morning, but also to study in small discipleship groups at Lagos in the evening, twice, twofold. Why? Because this is exactly the question that the Apostle Paul is addressing in his first epistle to Timothy, also second epistle and also to Titus, but very much so in first Timothy at the forefront. The problem in the local church in Ephesus, you'll recall, is that as the lives and ministries of Christ Jesus' apostles were coming to a close, probably around 60 to 62 AD, most of the apostles' lives and ministries were coming to a close with maybe some exceptions, perhaps the Apostle John. But most of their ministries were starting to come to a close. And what happened at that time, as you're well aware, is as the Apostles' ministry started to come to a close by God's sovereignty and by God's plan, there was a rising opposition to the good news of Jesus Christ. Not outside the church, brothers and sisters, in the church. In the church. Among the teachers and the leaders of the church. So it wasn't just anybody coming in and showing up and saying, hey, I'm here, I'm going to teach something different. It was among those people who had professed Christ. It was among those people who had led and perhaps even allegedly led people to Christ. This was where the opposition was rising and increasing to Jesus Christ and his good news. And the initial result was that many men and women who should not have been leading and teaching and serving in the church were doing so. And it was happening at an increased level. Just about every aspect of church life was being affected by this. The whole order of worship that God had laid down in Genesis 1 and 2 and that Christ had restored was coming under attack and being reversed. And so it's... In this epistle, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, directly addresses these two questions that we have up here. Who should we affirm 
and endorsed to serve and represent Christ and his church? And who should lead and teach and serve in the local church? These were the questions that the Apostle Paul was addressing. And his answer, brothers and sisters, is incredibly simple. It's not a head-scratcher. His answer, quite simply, is this. Those who should lead and teach and serve in the local church, those we should endorse and affirm, whether it be mission missions or seminary students or guest speakers who come into the pulpit, the criteria is simply this, that they be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That they be a good servant of Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to... 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Ted preached through uh, those first verses of 2 Timothy 4. He talked and preached about apostasy and what is apostasy. And in January, Pastor Peter is going to walk us through verses 6 through 10. And you don't have to worry, I'm not going to re-preach their sermons or go through those in great detail. What we've done is we've walked through and gone done an exposition slowly of First Timothy. But what I want to do this morning and for the rest of the month of November is I want to take everything that we have heard and learned so far from First Timothy in our Logos class and also Sunday mornings. And I want to try and summarize them and apply them as a church and consider how do we apply this in our church with the question of who should lead and teach and serve. How do we honor the Lord with these things as a church? How do we as a church, and how can we as a church together really affirm what is and what is not a good servant of Christ Jesus? 
And the reason I say this is because, brothers and sisters, this is not just the decision-making of one man in the church. It's not even the decision-making of just the elders, that they get behind closed doors and they decide this is who Peter likes and this is who Mark likes and this is who Ted likes and that's why, you know, you're going to move chairs at the back and you're going to serve communion. The real call as we come to God's word is that the church as a whole, as a family of God, comes together and understands and appreciates what a good servant of Jesus Christ is. And we affirm together, yes, this person should be serving in this capacity, or no, this person should not be serving in this capacity, from the pastor to the members. It's the criteria, brothers and sisters, for all of us. This is my job on the line. I'm putting before you my job description. But I'm also putting before you your job description as well. And where Paul directs us as we look at this, and we look at verse 6, as he talks to Timothy and he writes to Timothy and he shows everything that really he's writing to Timothy in this letter. He's writing to help Timothy to be that good servant of Christ Jesus. And the word he uses for servant is the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Timothy was the senior pastor of the church. He was the one appointed by Paul to run this church in Ephesus for a period of time. And yet at the same time, there is a sense that everybody in the church is to be a servant. Be it the pastor, be it our wives, be it the children, be it the elders, deacons, and members. None of us is exempt from that, brothers and sisters. And that idea of a diaconus or a deacon... It's the idea of a household slave who served on tables and handled food and handled the lowly jobs. Within a household or a great household, typically you were bought or you were owned or you belonged to the master. And it was your job to carry out the household duties and to manage and run the household well. And the word good that Paul uses here, kalos in Greek, okay, well it ties back to when God created the universe. And at the end of everything that God did, what did he say? Or what does the text say and Moses say? He saw that it was what? Good. It's the idea of what is right, what is orderly according to God's word, what is excellent, what is pleasing to God, what is pleasing in not Pastor Mark's eyes, Not the elder board's eyes, what is pleasing to God. Not necessarily what is pleasing to man. And when we see 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, Paul puts these two things together, what is good and what is pleasing to the Lord. He said, this is good. He's talking about prayer and what... uh, Pastor Ricardo taught us about last week and and Ted taught us about in weeks past that heart for the lost and praying that all men would be saved and praying for our leaders that they would be saved. And he says in 2.3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The Apostle Paul puts those two things together, what is good and what is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So when the Apostle Paul is speaking about a good servant of Christ Jesus, he's talking about a servant who doesn't just simply belong to Christ Jesus. He's talking about a servant who is pleasing to him. Brothers and sisters, how often 
does being pleasing to God weigh in? In how we minister to our families, how we parent our children, how we interact on a Sunday, how we serve one another when no one else is looking. Well, that brings us to our first point for this morning. I think. See here. Okay. I think we're having a hard time with the slides. So, number one. Okay, you'll bear with me. You'll need a little bit of help. A good servant of Christ Jesus is a servant who is pleasing to the Lord. A good servant of Christ Jesus is a servant who is pleasing to the Lord. Okay? Who should be leading and teaching and serving in our church? Who should we consider supporting for seminary, for church planting, and for missions? Well, the answer, according to God's word, is clear. It's a servant of Christ Jesus who is pleasing to the Lord. And we see this throughout the Apostle Paul's ministry. When you go through and you read this, the Apostle Paul doesn't just write a list of to-dos. Over and over and over again, you're going to see this over again. He's going to emphasize over and over again, ultimately, what is pleasing to the Lord. Not what is pleasing to the Apostle Paul. It's not what's pleasing to me. It's what's pleasing to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim or we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. And then in 2 Timothy 2.4, the Apostle Paul writes, he's talking about a soldier and he's using it as for Timothy, a metaphor or an illustration of being a servant of the Lord. A soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He's making the point, the soldier's doesn't get entangled with all these other distractions in the world because his aim is to be pleasing to the one who enlisted him. Who should not be leading, teaching, and serving in our church? Who should, not, who should we not be supporting in ministry? Well, the answer is very clear. A servant who is not pleasing to the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, this sounds obvious. And it sounds obvious because, sadly, most of us think we're pleasing to the Lord. And we think we're pleasing to the Lord because very often the standards we use for what is pleasing to the Lord many times happens to be our standard and not the Lord's standards. And that's what tends to lean us in the direction of thinking we're okay with God and being critical of everybody else. Do you ever notice... That when people do things to annoy us, you whisper under your breath, we get upset. But how often, brothers and sisters, do we find ourselves doing the very same things and letting ourselves off the hook? Our propensity and our standard is that we are the center of the universe. We are the gold standard of how we rate what is good in ministry and what isn't good in ministry. It amazes me so often, and it amazed me throughout seminary, when I would hear seminary students criticize John MacArthur when he preached. I'm like, dude, are you serious? But the truth is, is we know that. How often in church situations where criticisms come for the praise team, or the people who sing, or the people who are doing AV. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have very little experience in any of those things. I have very little experience in doing anything technical or AV. If you know me, you know that. 
why? Where does that come from? Well, brothers and sisters, it comes from a heart of pride because we think we know what's pleasing to the Lord. It sounds obvious. But brothers and sisters, how often does what is pleasing to the Lord weigh in in what we do or say? How often is what is pleasing to the Lord, does that weigh in or does that cause you pause in the decisions and choices you make, in the job you take, in the people you date, in the checks you write, in the movies that we watch, in the music that we listen to, how we spend our time? You see, it becomes a big deal when it comes to supporting a missionary or supporting a seminary student because suddenly there's a quote-unquote, a lot at stake. We have to think about it. But it's hard, brothers and sisters, because very often we haven't been thinking that way in all the small things in our lives. And then when it comes to a big thing in our life, we're kind of paralyzed. The problem in Ephesians, for the elders and the deacons and the members, was increasingly they were making decisions and choices that were pleasing to them. They were doing what was right in their eyes. And brothers and sisters, when we do that, and we do it often if we're honest, what we frequently forget is that the church is God's household, that He is the master and the king, not us. And he is the one who has the right to evaluate our work. We, brothers and sisters, are his servants and his children. Praise God, he alleviates us of that responsibility. When you're on the job, your co-workers, at the end of the day, are they the ones who fill out your evaluation? Well, at some companies they do. They want that feedback. But with the Lord, he is king. And what counts, brothers and sisters, in his household is one thing, what is pleasing to him and not us. In fact, quite the opposite, Jesus points out, what is pleasing to us is frequently an abomination to God. Jeremiah 17.9, Jeremiah makes the point to the children of Israel, who were filling the temples, by the way, at that time. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. They went to the temple all the time, and they thought everything that they were doing was pleasing to the Lord. But in fact, it was an abomination to the Lord. And he pointed out to them, the heart is deceitful above all things. And Jesus makes the point in Luke 16, 15. He says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We fail to tell people this when they walk in through the church doors. More often than not, the things that we highly esteem and we value in the world, the things that we get a pat on the shoulder for in our jobs that make us a a success, the opinions that we give to our bosses that advance us in our careers, when it comes to the house of the Lord, many times, brothers and sisters, those things are an abomination to the Lord. And it's because many times those are very works-based Achievement-oriented, financial success-related ways of thinking. And brothers and sisters, if that was the measure with which God measured us in our lives, 
Where would we stand with him, brothers and sisters? Would we even be allowed to enter through the door? Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Listen to what he says here. It's an either-or statement. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if the trajectory and pattern of our life is pleasing men, we are not servants of Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's where we get stumbled and where we get conflicted. And we get pulled in different directions. And many times, brothers and sisters, that's where the Lord graciously brings hard things into our lives. And he does it as a kindness because he's refining our hearts and souls. And he's allowing these things to come to the surface. And he's allowing us to see our hearts. And he's coming in and giving opportunity for the light of God's word to remove those things. So that in the end, all that matters is being pleasing to him. The one who loves us and died for us. Who should be leading and teaching and serving in our church? Who should we consider supporting for seminary or for church planting or for missions? Brothers and sisters, it's a servant of Christ Jesus who is pleasing to the Lord. Who should not be leading and teaching and serving in our church? Who should not be supported in ministry? a servant who's pleasing men rather than God. A servant who is not pleasing to the Lord. And this, of course, begs the question, well, how do we know exactly what's pleasing to the Lord? Well, Pastor Mark, how do you know what's pleasing to the Lord? Well, fortunately, fortunately, we have a Bible. And in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, this is exactly what he's doing in 1 Timothy. He's spelling out in detail For Timothy, what exactly is pleasing to the Lord? And I'd encourage you, if you have the chance and the opportunity, to read through 1 Timothy from beginning to end. To read through 1 Timothy from beginning to end. Because as you do, you start to see the big picture of what Paul's doing here. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Okay, and I'll read it out to you. We have the verses there and some things there. But our second point for this morning is, a good servant of Christ Jesus is a servant who is filled with his spirit and his word. A good servant of Christ Jesus is a servant who is filled with his spirit and his word. You want to know what God's objective criterion standard is for what is pleasing to him. So often the things that we hear in the church is, well, this is your opinion. Or it seems that whoever gets appointed to preach and teach or do it's subjective. Well, it's because it's a buddy of Pastor Mark's. But as we come to God's word, God provides us with an objective criteria and standard. For what is pleasing to him. In fact that's why brothers and sisters. He gave us his word. He gave us his word so that we would know him. And understand his character. He has given us the love letter of his word. So we can appreciate his heart. 
That's what Pastor Morales preached on last, last week. It's, it's Paul's heart for mission. But Paul's heart for mission is God's heart for mission. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to go far to see what God's heart is and what pleases him. And there's no secret ingredient in what makes a good servant. The essential ingredient that makes a good servant of Christ Jesus, that makes someone good and pleasing to God, is simply this. It's Christ Jesus himself, and it's his word. He's the only one, brothers and sisters, who is truly good and pleasing to the Lord. You know, the people come to Jesus, good teacher, why do you call me good? The rich young ruler, good teacher, why do you call me good? You know there's only one who is good, and that's God. There's only one who's ever been good and pleasing to the Lord in and of himself, and that's his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, 18, Jesus quotes Isaiah 42, 1, and says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And he's quoting here Isaiah, and he's showing, and he comes and he says to them, I'm fulfilling this. I'm the fulfillment of this. And these are the things that the Lord says when Jesus is baptized. My beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, if we want an idea of what's pleasing to the Lord, we need look no further than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to look to his word. We just look at him. That is what a good servant of the Lord is. That is what is pleasing to the Lord. That is really the measure. And that's the standard. Oh, Pastor Mark, you don't expect me to be like Jesus, do you? You're not like Jesus. Well, let's have a look at what the Apostle Paul has to say. As you read through all of the Apostle Paul's God-breathed epistles, he never lets us forget this truth. He never lets us forget that it is Christ Jesus, his person, his work, and his word that ultimately is pleasing to the Lord. And that is God's gift to us in the person of Christ. God has given it to us, brothers and sisters. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to go to seminary. Christ came to give it to you. He came to give you himself. And the Apostle Paul never lets us forget that. As you read through his epistles, he brings us back over and over and over from beginning to end. And what, re- what repeatedly ties together and anchors every aspect of what the Apostle Paul writes. It's always, it's always, it's always Christ Jesus, his work and his word. And as you read through the epistles, you know we talk about these things. We talk about the indicatives. Who God calls us to be. And we talk about the imperatives. The commands of what God commands us to do. And as you read through Paul's epistles. You see that the imperatives and the indicatives. Are always tied together. And anchored by Christ Jesus. His work and his word. So bear with me for one minute. Go back if you would in your Bibles. To 1 Timothy or 1 Timothy chapter 1. The opening chapter. And I want to walk you through this. And I want you to see the big picture a little bit. Of how Paul thinks and what he's doing. The first three verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1 are Paul's greeting. It is, if you will, an indicative. 
who we are in Christ, who Paul is in Christ. And Paul, as he opens this epistle, in those first two verses, he mentions Christ Jesus' name no less than three times. Do you think it's important? It's where the Apostle Paul begins. And then after that opening indicative, in verses 3 to 7, the Apostle Paul provides for Timothy the opening imperative, the command, the charge for what this entire epistle is all about. Timothy, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay? And the rest of the epistle is all an unfolding of that imperative or command. And what follows that imperative and command? In verse 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul explains the law and the gospel. That's the word of God. That's the word of Christ. The whole counsel of God, the law and the gospel. And then after he finishes explaining the right use of the law and the gospel, in verse 12 through 17, he focuses on Christ Jesus' perfect work in his life. And after he finishes explaining Christ Jesus' perfect work in his life, then he comes back and repeats once again, and gives that charge again, the imperative again. And so you see sandwiched, Okay, I don't want to be pejorative here, okay? Don't want to reduce the gospel to a burger, okay? But when you look at it, sandwiched in the middle, the heart of it, of everything that the Apostle Paul says, from the indicatives, who God calls us to be, to the imperatives, what God commands us to do, in the center with Paul, when you read through all his letters, over and over and over again, you see this pattern. It's the word of Christ, and it's the work of Christ, and it's the person of Christ. And it happens so often, brothers and sisters, you cannot say it is an accident. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the mind of Christ and Paul that demonstrates to us that what holds together the entire Christian life, who we are to be and what we are to do, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His word, His work, His life in us. What the Apostle Paul unfolds for us here, even in the pattern the way he thinks, is that Jesus is like the sun in our solar system. He's the one who holds together everything. And without him, it all falls apart. Why? Because this is how God created the universe in our lives. We see that in Genesis. But Paul also says in Colossians 1.17, In him, all things hold together. All things, brothers and sisters, our marriages, our families, our friendships, our work, our school, our studies, our worship, our church. Very, very, very clearly for the Apostle Paul, without Christ Jesus, without His Word, without His work in our lives, brothers and sisters, we cannot please God. 
You cannot be who God has called you and created you to be. And you cannot do what God has commanded you to do. It is absolutely impossible. Why? Because that's the way God designed it to be. Out of love for his son. Now this past week, for past few weeks, for Pastor's Appreciation Week, some of you have been kind and gracious to me. Okay, And, and there's some chocolate that's come in. Chocolate cake, chocolate pecan pie. Because according to my standard, not the Lord's, if it's not chocolate, it doesn't cut it, right? That's Mark Chen's gold standard. But to some degree, brothers and sisters, church experience and what was happening in that church in Ephesus is they had taken Jesus out of the picture. And they were increasingly interested in everything that had to do with church. Who serves? Who's going to pray? Who's going to teach? Who's going to sing? How do we worship? What are we focusing on? How about these cool things in the Old Testament? And it was about many things except Jesus. And it was increasingly becoming that way. And it's a little bit like going to someone and saying, here's a chocolate cake and there's no chocolate in it. What's this all about? How do you make a chocolate cake without chocolate? How do you be a Christian without Christ? And yet, brothers and sisters, that's the temptation and trend that happens so often and so frequently. Years ago, someone sold me something that was alleged to be a Rolex watch. Stopped working. Stopped working very quickly. So I was very naive. I went to the Rolex store and took it in to get it serviced. Said, there's something wrong with this watch. The man behind the desk, as soon as he opened the back of the watch, he coughed and he looked at me. And I was lucky he didn't call the police. Because what was inside, even though the outside looked like a Rolex, was a counterfeit made in Hong Kong. Okay. Now we laugh at that. And it shows in many ways how ridiculous I am. But brothers and sisters, our Christian life, how often is our Christian life an appearance of all the trappings of godliness and yet we are not able to do what God has called us to do and we're not able to be what God has made us to be because brothers and sisters it's not Christ's word it's not his spirit it's not his work that is inside of us and is the center of our lives brothers and sisters that's all of biblical counseling All of biblical counseling, when there are troubles and trials and things start to break down and people come in and they're grieved and they're hurt and things are hard, praise God, he has a remedy. And the remedy very often is very simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. We're in these places of hurt and woe. Many are the the woes of those who pursue other gods. It's because the God that's been inside, brothers and sisters, has not been Jesus. It's been us. And that's what we built our marriages around. And that's what we've built our worship around. And that's what we built our friendship around. In 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul explains to us, God gave us the law and he gave us the word to show us what's inside our hearts. And how does God describe it? Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unholy, profane, sinners. Brothers and sisters, what the law was given to us is to show us what's inside. That there is nothing inside of us that is pleasing to God. 
I'm going to say that again. There is nothing inside of us. Not some of it. Yeah, but I did good work for the, uh, the, the Sunday school students, you know. I did pretty good work on the praise team. I did a pretty good message. Brothers and sisters, the law shows us that there is nothing good inside us. There is nothing that is pleasing to the Lord. The law was given to us, brothers and sisters, to show us our desperate, desperate need for God. And our desperate need for God, not just to save us from our sin, but to give us a new heart and a new life and a new love. To remake us completely from the ground up. To make us, brothers and sisters, pleasing to Him. And the new heart and the new life and the new love that we need is the heart and life and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, it's an all or none proposition. What is the good news of God's word? It's that in love, God the Father sent his son, not just to die on the cross for our sin. God didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, brothers and sisters. That's part of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. He sent Jesus Christ not only to die for our sin, but to rise and to live in us as Lord, and to fill our lives with His Spirit and His Word. To make sinners like you and I, by His grace and His mercy, pleasing to God. From the inside out. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in 1 verse 15, he says, the saying, and the word he uses is actually logos, the word is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The saying, the word, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Brothers and sisters, who is the center of your universe? What does your life revolve around? We need to answer that question long before we step in the pulpit or we volunteer for a service in the church. What makes you tick? What fills your heart and what fills your life? Well, the testimony as we come to verse 13 through 17, we come to Paul's repeated testimonies of what Christ Jesus did for him, is it was Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone that made Paul's life pleasing to God. It's Christ Jesus alone who emptied the Apostle Paul's life of pride and self-righteousness and hatred for God and for his church and filled it with his spirit and his word. And he did so out of grace and mercy for Paul. That means Paul says, I didn't deserve it. And we see as Paul describes this and he shares his testimony, what a contrast to the false teachers in Ephesus. Did these false teachers study the scripture? Yes. Did they serve in church? Yes. Did they preach Christ? Yes. Did they serve at the women's tea parties? Maybe. But what was very apparent to anyone who was truly filled with Christ Jesus and his word is that the lives and doctrine of these false teachers were filled not with Christ Jesus, but themselves. Their lives and their doctrines were filled with their experiences, their opinions, 
their desires, their agendas, their works, their accomplishments. Don't eat. Don't get married. Do this. Don't do that. Get circumcised. All of these other things. It was filled with all these secondary things rather than the desires and words and works of the only one who matters, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now I know that seems a long way away, but brothers and sisters, the same things happen in this day and age. That's why the Holy Spirit left it for us. What is so attractive about apostasy? Walking away from Jesus Christ. That's essentially what apostasy is. That's what Ted walked us through. Apostasy, brothers and sisters, and beware, because Jesus says a little leaven leavens the whole. And he warned the disciples, and if the disciples could be swayed from it, brothers and sisters, you and I could be swayed by it. Brothers, the deceitfulness of apostasy, and what is so attractive, is it sells the lie that our pride so desperately wants to believe and hear. That there is something that I can say or do that is pleasing to the Lord. Think about that for a second, brothers and sisters. That desire that there is something I can say and do in addition to Christ Jesus that is pleasing to the Lord. How many of you feel hurt when someone criticizes the work that you do at church? You're all good. You're all good. How many when you labor hard to serve someone, cook an amazing meal, and what comes back is, ah, it's okay. None of you. Brothers and sisters, when we walk down that path, and I'm going to say this, there's no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. Where does that come from? It comes from a belief that somehow because I worked hard, tried hard, studied hard, did a good effort, read all the websites on the best recipes or the best way to put together a sermon, or they liked my sermon at TMS, somehow, because of all of those things... It should be pleasing to you and it should be pleasing to the Lord. It's a works-based righteousness. If everything that was there was coming from Jesus, if it's all found money, if it's all His that's being given, hey man, if if you don't like it, you're criticizing the man. You're not criticizing me. Talk to the man. Because all I have to offer you is trash. I've got nothing good in me to offer. The only good things I have to offer is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I can work, I can study, I can labor, I can read every book on the exemplary husband. At the end of the day, the only good thing is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you scratch the surface and it's in our skin far more than we care to admit. Who should be leading and teaching and serving in our church? Who should we consider supporting for seminary and church planting and missions? Brothers and sisters, it's the person who is filled with the Spirit and the Word of Jesus Christ. It's the person whose marriage and ministry and family is held together, not by his ability to manage or earn or hold things together. It's held together by Christ Jesus and His Word. 
Who should not be leading and teaching and serving in our church? Who should not be supported in ministries? It's a servant who is filled with himself rather than the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's not about what you can do for Christ Jesus. It's about what you need Christ Jesus to do in you. And that's why, brothers and sisters, Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Because he saw very much all his giftedness was worth, as he referred to, scubalon. Cow dung, horse dung, whatever you find in the street. All of the whistles and bells, and brothers and sisters, if you think you're gifted, you've got nothing in comparison to the Apostle Paul. But where do we find the Apostle Paul in joy, overwhelmed with the gospel? Well, we find that, brothers and sisters, when he's in prison and he's writing letters to the church. Why? Because it's not the circumstances. It's not all the other trappings around. His heart is overflowing with the love of Christ, with Christ's word, with the good news of the gospel. And because of that, he has incredible joy in the face of great opposition. His life, brothers and sisters, is filled with the love and life of Christ. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. A good servant of Christ Jesus guards and treasures the gospel with his life. A good servant of Christ Jesus guards and treasures the gospel with his life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one who was good and pleasing to the Lord. What was his example? Was he filled with himself and his own agenda? Was he there giving recommendations to the Father saying, Father, I think we should do this, 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 and this. Because I'm down here. You don't understand that. I'm actually down here. This is the way it works down here. You need to come down here and see the way it works. No, he said, not my will be done. Thy will be done. And Jesus loved the Father, and he loved the good news, and he loved the plan of salvation for sinners so much that he was willing to go to the cross and die for it, brothers and sisters. As Ricardo would say, the ultimate missionary, the ultimate apostle, the ultimate good servant. Brothers and sisters, he guarded and treasured the gospel with his life. And as we see Paul, that was Paul's example too. Why? Because for Paul, it was the only thing that mattered. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter. Brothers and sisters, if we truly believe that the only thing of value in our lives, the only good thing in our lives is Jesus Christ, His person, His work, His life, what joy we would have and how little time we would waste with secondary things and how few worries we would actually have, brothers and sisters, because Nobody can take away the most precious gift that's been entrusted to us. You know, as the Morales family drove home, we texted with them to make sure that they were okay. And what we discovered, you know, Julie texted me and said, did you know it was Vanna's birthday? I had no idea, obviously. I'm not on Facebook, I'm checked out. And so we felt bad and, and, and Julie called 
Vana up and texted her just to say, you should have told us. We wanted to wish you a happy birthday. And, and then Vana shared with us, you know, because it was her birthday, she shared with Ricardo that what she wanted to do on the way home was to stop off at the beach in Santa Cruz on their way down. And as they did so, uh, someone saw her put her purse in the trunk and they basically smashed the driver's window and then basically took her purse. And then they spent like, you know, a few hours with the, the police and then Home Depot and trying to get the window with a piece of, you know, plastic over and got home 1030 at night. So Julie told me this and I felt terrible, terrible, terrible. So the next day I called Ricardo just to see how he was doing, you know, because it sounded like it was a rough day, you know, and as I, I, I phoned him. Hello, mi hermano. How you doing? I was like, Ricardo, I, I heard what happened today. Oh, Mark, don't worry. That's life. That's life. We were so refreshed, so encouraged by spending time with your beautiful church. I was just overwhelmed. I was so convicted because, you know, if it was me, it'd be like, you know, got to get the window. Ricardo, how are we going to get this window done? You know, but, but for him, the joy and the gratitude was being able to share with people God's heart for sinners. They're going to Columbia. They're going to get rid of the car, probably. It's a temporary thing. And the bigger picture, what matters most, what fills the heart. The treasure, brothers and sisters. Well, brothers and sisters, we can see that with all of us, can't we? In the small ways and the private ways. Brothers and sisters, what is your treasure? And what is filling your life? Where we're going with this with the church, brothers and sisters, is that our church together can gather together and pray and consider Not everybody else, but our own hearts. Are we good servants of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, the Lord has given us objective objective criteria. Are we pleasing to the Lord? Is our lives, are our lives filled with his spirit and, and the word? Or are they filled with lesser things? Brothers and sisters... Do we esteem Christ and his gospel so much so that we're willing to take risks? Put ourselves out there. Maybe be laughed at by people. Maybe be criticized as we come alongside a brother and share a concern with them. Maybe take pushback or people are going to criticize our lifestyles. Why? Because Christ is worth everything. And what the elders have done, brothers and sisters, as we gather together and we pray, is we consider these things. And we see that God has given us his word, and he's also given us the testimony of two or three witnesses, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that as we gather together in Christ's name, and we consider his word, and we consider the testimony and the pattern of a person's life within the local church over a period of time, It's not a hard decision, brothers and sisters. It's a very clear decision. What is pleasing to the Lord? And does this person actually represent and serve the Lord? Or is this person not pleasing to the Lord? And brothers and sisters, this is something that I'm going to encourage you and exhort you. Think about in your own life. When I was partway through seminary, 
I had a very successful seminary career. Why do I boast of it? Because it's worth absolutely nothing. I had a very successful ministry career at Grace. Why do I boast of it? It's worth absolutely nothing. I had many friends. I was highly esteemed by many people. They had me doing all the medical work, and I worked as a pastoral intern. Later, they offered me another job to get it a little closer to John MacArthur, all of those different things. But brothers and sisters, I stepped back. And I went to the pastor who was overseeing me, and I said, my heart is not good. What's coming out is thorns. I'm doing 20 zillion things. But I'm seeing in my heart a legalistic heart. I'm seeing in my heart a heart that's all about achievement and getting everything done. The to-do list was growing like crazy and I was becoming embittered. And what brought me home was John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I realized as busy as I was and as successful as I was in church ministry, I was starting to lose what was most important. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what was getting esteemed more highly than anything was getting the deadline done and taking care of everybody at church, but Jesus was left behind. So I went to the pastor who was over me and I said, look, it's time for me to step out and step back. No mas, okay? Because what's most important has been left behind. Brothers and sisters, you should do that in your hearts and lives. We're coming to the table, the Lord's Supper, in just a moment. You need to consider in your heart and life, are you a good servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is He is present and He is willing. Those who call upon His name, He will by no means turn away. And He Himself, as we come to Him and repent of our sins and say, Lord Jesus, my life has been filled with secondary things. The pattern of my life is not You. It's so much other stuff. He is gracious to forgive. He fills our hearts with His love and His Spirit and His Word. He redeems and He washes and He makes us beautiful. And He restores us like the Apostle Paul and Peter and He makes us fit for ministry. Because what is pleasing to the Lord is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not us. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what is beautiful in this world and in this life is you, not us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Fill us with your word. Would we treasure and guard the gospel? Lord Jesus, would you make us good servants who are pleasing to you? In your name we pray. Amen.